Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Emma Watsky coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya on the lands of Ghanamina. Our team pays our deepest respect to elders past and present. And today on the show... Dad being blind, knowing the story of nuclear testing, it's been within our family for decades. Almost 70 years ago, what has been described as the black mist and toxic smell rolled across SA's emu fields. Seven decades on, Karina Lester tells her story as ICANN is calling Australia to sign and ratify the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Also, following the shock announcement by the Solomon Islands that China would be a defence and economic partner for them, another disturbing development is a similar agreement with Timor-Leste, a nation sitting very close to Darwin. We find out what the nature of this agreement is and how it could affect Australia's relationship with Timor-Leste. And later in the show... Any type of platform that allows people to hear directly from people who have made something or who work in something, who are from areas that people don't really ever get an opportunity to be exposed to. First Nations artists from all corners of Australia will journey to Adelaide next week. Their objective? To join this year's Tanundi Art Fair. We have the details. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today... The choice for President of the United States next year has just become even more complex. Former President Trump is embroiled in numerous criminal trials, which could see him do significant jail time. Yet he is still far and away the most popular Republican and therefore most likely to run for president. President Biden has to fight off questions surrounding his age and the lawsuits surrounding the activities of his younger son, Hunter Biden. But now, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the son of former Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, who was the brother of President John F. Kennedy, has announced he will run as an independent candidate for president next year. This makes it an unusual three-cornered contest. Roderick Chambers has this story. Something is stirring in us. It says it doesn't have to be this way. People stop me everywhere at airports, at hotels and malls on the street, and they remind me that this country is ready for a history-making change. They are ready to reclaim their freedom, their independence. And, And that's why I'm here today. I'm here to declare myself an independent candidate You are hearing Robert Kennedy's son, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., announce that he is no longer contesting the Democratic nomination against Joe Biden for president, but now is running as an independent candidate, which will make next year's presidential election even harder to predict. RFK Jr. has had a troubled past recovering from drug addiction and the trauma of his family's tragedies, not the least being the assassination of his uncle, John F. Kennedy, the president, and his father, the presidential candidate, Robert F. Kennedy. He holds some views which don't sit well with the Democratic Party, but will attract traditional Republicans. And of course, being a Kennedy is a plus for a presidential candidate. I asked Jared Monshine, Director of Research at the US Studies Centre at the University of Sydney, how this three-horse race could change the US presidential election next year. For some time now, there have been third-party candidates um, in US elections who are never, they basically never get electoral college votes, but they do sort of take away votes from other candidates. Um, the most famous 
would probably be Ross Perot when he ran in the 1992 election against Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush. George H.W. Bush was looking for a second term of office, and he lost. And a lot of people attribute that loss to Ross Perot peeling away votes from other conservatives who would have normally gone for a George H.W. Bush. Um, and then you have in 2016. And, but do, say, do you do you believe that? Because I've also seen analysis that says that he he got votes from both sides. I think that is more likely than not that he cost George H. W. Bush the election. I think the economy at the time didn't, certainly didn't help the president at the time. But more, if you look at sort of the profile, I, don't, I think there were more votes lost by George H. W. Bush than lost by Bill Clinton. So the other one would be 2016 with Jill Stein, um, with people saying that she cost Hillary Clinton votes against Donald Trump, who, you know, votes who normally would have gone to Hillary Clinton instead went to the Green Party because they deemed both of those candidates unpalatable. So the third party, uh, the third party candidate really doesn't have a good chance of, of winning anything, but they do have a definite uh, chance of ruining another candidate's chances. And right now, Kennedy realized that I think he has more opportunities running as an independent than as a Democrat. And right now, it seems like he may peel away more of Trump voters, but we're still in the early days for this. Which is which is curious in a way, because you, you think of the Kennedys as the Democratic royalty. But in this case, his views uh, often are, are aligning with a lot of the, the right views, aren't they, with, in, in terms of vaccinations and mask wearing and that sort of thing that he holds? That's right. Yeah, his his uh, a lot of his family have sort of uh, denounced him um, and and renounced him and just said he doesn't represent their family. I mean, it was the Kennedy family in 2008 who um, Ted Kennedy, who is a, a senator from Massachusetts, as well as Caroline Kennedy, the current uh, uh, U.S. ambassador to Australia, who endorsed Barack Obama in 2008. That really solidified in many ways the sort of establishment uh, view that, that Barack Obama was a palatable candidate and and better uh, and a better one than Hillary Clinton in 2008. Um, so their role in democratic politics, as you said, are, are no small uh, is is not a small one whatsoever. And so him doing this, him him running as this independent candidate before that running as a Democrat, um, it really has um, been quite public how much it's put the rest of the Kennedy family at pains. Do uh, younger people in the U.S. revere the Kennedys as much as people from the older generation, do you think? I don't think the Kennedy name has as much resonance with the younger generations, but they definitely are familiar with it. Um, so I don't, I don't think that um, you're going to see many young Americans vote for Robert F. Kennedy Jr. because of the Kennedy name as much as his, his views, whereas uh, you know maybe a generation earlier the Kennedy name still carried a lot more political weight across a, a wide range of, uh, of ages and demographics. Jared Mondashin, Director of Research at the US Studies Centre at the University of Sydney, ending that report by Roderick Chambers. The bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki is what most associate with nuclear weapons. 
But Yankun Janjara woman Karina Lester has a very different story. Almost 70 years ago in 1953, her late father, Yami Lester, a boy at the time, was blinded by the flash of the nuclear weapons test at Emu's field. Karina, a linguist, has also devoted her life campaigning to stop nuclear weapons, mostly through her work with the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons. Seven decades on, in commemoration of the 70th anniversary, ICANN is calling Australia to sign and ratify the UN Treaty of the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. But this conversation starts at the beginning. Karina spoke with The Wire's Nikki Page. There is a real personal story because of what those tests had taken away from our family and this was many of our loved ones who were living here at the time in the community were working for the pastoralists. Um, my late Grandmother was working as a domestic. There were Anongo present, living a bit of two worlds, still practising traditional ways and still hunting and gathering and looking after country and teaching children and passing on the knowledge that they hold. But back then in October 1953, it was here when that ground shook and the black mist rolled over that community. We never really, as a family, questioned Dad's disability. We were always curious on why Dad was blind. It's a very sad story in that government of the day agreed to conduct testing, in this case, with nuclear bombs. You know, it took his eyesight. He'd never seen us kids. As we got older, we had our own children, and Dad never was able to see his grandchildren. Dad being blind... Knowing the story of nuclear testing, it's been within our family for decades. There are grandchildren and there are great-grannies now as well, and this story is a big part of their story. Our lived experience is governments shaking hands and saying, yes, come in and test, no one's out there, is the story that we come from. Let's focus on what you have done trying to right the wrong of what was done to your people and your determination that it shouldn't happen ever again and the uh, Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons. That's been a decade's journey with, with ICANN and a big part of the work is really lift the voices of those that have had that lived experience. People within our community and, and within our state of South Australia need to be aware of what happened in 1953 with Totem 1 and Totem 2, but the program in testing nuclear weapons had moved down to Maralinga, Jaroja country as well, where they continued with the program. That, again, was another two years of you know hard campaigning and hard conversations and is a big part of ICANN's work as well, leading up to the treaty to be international law. And we were slowly starting to get some international interest as well. And ICANN's work is this international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, to build this huge network internationally to really, you know, send a strong message that nuclear weapons are catastrophic and not the solution for world peace. I'm an ambassador of the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons and a big part of that is really reminding our wider community 
what happened in South Australia, but what continues to happen to First Nations peoples of this state and and this nation. And we're now in a situation where we've we've got a federal Labor government that has signed the AUKUS agreement with the UK and the US, basically involving nuclear submarines in Australia. What would you say are the implications for the project of getting the treaty signed by enough countries and specifically by Australia? I think there's been quite a lot of secrecy around the AUKUS deal and also blatant disregard of the treaty itself and what it means to those who suffer to this day of what happened in that time when the British government came and and tested on our soils in the 50s and 60s. It shows that there is no real recognition, but it also is very unclear about what Australia's role is in the AUKUS agreement. There is fear within our First Nations community and concern that part of the deal is that Australia will quite possibly be the waste dump for those two countries. Our Premier hasn't clearly said no to the idea. We are asking what that arrangement is and to express our concerns around possibly being the waste dump of the world. Karina Lester speaking with The Wire's Nikki Page almost 70 years since the people there experienced the first nuclear weapons test on mainland Australia. The president of Timor-Leste, Jose Ramos-Horta, has indicated China declined a request to build military infrastructure in his nation over concerns it would create an overreaction from Australia. It comes after some Australian politicians expressed unease following last month's formation of a new comprehensive strategic partnership between China and Timor-Leste. The new partnership has said its focus is on key development priorities in Timor-Leste, but mentions improving high-level military exchanges and boosting cooperation of joint exercises and training. Talia Kreft asked Pete Connolly, adjunct fellow at the University of New South Wales and Centre for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, the background behind this development. China and Timor-Leste have have had a a fairly close relationship ever since Timor-Leste's independence in 2002, and that has included all arms of... Chinese statecraft being involved in Timor-Leste, whether that be political, economic or security. And uh, while we've seen that kind of relationship grow more recently in some of the Pacific Islands, particularly in Melanesia since 2017, it's fair to say that all those patterns of relationship started much earlier in Timor-Leste. So because of that, it's not surprising that China and Timor-Leste have signed a comprehensive strategic partnership. In fact, I was surprised they hadn't signed one earlier because China has done the same with each of its Pacific partners, despite starting the momentum of that relationship at a later point. What does this comprehensive strategic framework between Timor-Leste and China mean for Australia? Look, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. As I've said, uh, China has a comprehensive strategic partnership with so many other countries. It's almost become a, a marker of, of, of one form of a relationship that it has with many of the countries that are on the Belt and Road Initiative. And, and as I said before, 
it tends to mean that China is working comprehensively from its own perspective, using all of its forms of statecraft to influence that country. And I would say that it was doing that for years before it signed this new comprehensive strategic partnership with Timor. And I don't think the piece of paper itself makes a whole lot of difference. What's important is the use of China's statecraft to deliver its grand strategy, which it does through a form of integration of political, economic and security statecraft. And in doing so, the the other nation tends to receive things that it's interested in, particularly on the economic side, but tends to be influenced strategically at the same time. So it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic where each of the partners in that relationship have quite different interests to each other. Uh, what that means for Australia is that there is progressively more and more countries close to Australia who have formerly had close relationships with Australia that are in this kind of relationship with China. And in this current climate for, of greater competition, that's obviously an issue for Australia. Some Australian politicians expressed concern following a report in the China state media that this new agreement between Beijing and Timor-Leste involved military exchanges. Is this concern an overreaction? So the concern about exchanges, it's a bit hard to know what that means. Uh, That's not a term I've often seen in the description of, say, military-to-military relationships between China and countries in in Australia's immediate region. Normally, it consists of some limited contributions of materiel, such as uniforms, vehicles, etc., along with training, which gets provided to members of, in this case, the the Timorese military, the FFDTL, in-country in China. Now, I expect there's been Timorese officers being trained in China for a very long time. So, once again, this would be nothing new if... By exchanges, they're referring to having members of the Chinese military come and operate in Timor whilst Timorese go and operate in China. Yes, that would be something very new. And that would be, I imagine, of of concern to Australia strategically. But getting back to to the start point, it's quite unclear as to what that term means. And if it's just been said in, in the Chinese state media, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. Was there anything else that you would like to add about Australia and Timor-Leste's relationship and any impact this partnership could have on the relationship between Australia and Timor-Leste? The Australian Defence Force and the FFDTL continue to have a pretty strong relationship and I don't think there's anything about this announcement that's necessarily going to change that. But at the same time, I imagine they'll be be watching and interested in, in uh, what the developments occur. Pete Connolly, adjunct fellow at the University of New South Wales and Centre for Strategic and Inter- International Studies in Washington, speaking with The Wire's Talia Kreft. First Nations artists from all corners of Australia will travel a collective of over 120,000 kilometres. Their objective? To meet in Adelaide for this year's Tanundi Art Fair, which brings together over 50 art centres from across the nation. The fair runs for two days, forming part of the Art Gallery of South Australia's Tanundi, a festival of contemporary Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art. Project manager Jade Turner says this year is significant as the art fair returns in person 
after two years online. So what else will this event mean for both artists and members of the public? Miss Turner has more. This year is going to be a really big year um, for Tanundi in general, but also for the art fair, because we've got art fair coming back for the first time in person since 2020 um, and artists coming back to Adelaide for the first time since 2019. So we're going to have over 40 art centres from across Australia at the Adelaide Entertainment Centre and it'll just be a really great opportunity for the artists to get together, sell their artworks, for people to come on down and interact with those artists. Most art centres are bringing at least two artists from their art centre. With Mm -hmm. two years of being presented online, what are you looking forward to most with the re-emergence of that in-person component? I think it's just obviously that excitement of coming out of COVID and everyone, the general public, being able to come and meet artists and be able to talk about their artworks directly with artists and art centres. But then there's also this other component of it that's really exciting, which is the artists being very excited to be able to come and interact with the public and have these opportunities to come to places like Adelaide. It just gives them an exciting opportunity to interact outside of their art centre and outside of their communities. And what's the benefit of connecting so many artists and art centres from across Australia at that one venue? I think it gives them a platform to share their stories, their um, specific skill sets, because, you know, every artist and art centre has very different styles, different history, different culture. So it's just a great way to have everyone together for the public to even have an opportunity to go learn from these artists and also to hear stories from the artists. Like it's a place where you can ask the artist directly, what's the story of this painting or this artwork? They can tell you, which also adds an extra layer of meaning. So, yeah, it just gives the public that opportunity as well to have a deeper understanding of the art and artist skills and practices. You know, even art centre managers can tell you more about, you know, what does that art centre do? What's the value for First Nations people and communities to share their art with the broader community and the non-Indigenous community? I think like with any type of platform that allows people to hear directly from people who have made something or who work in something, who are from areas that people don't really ever get an opportunity to be exposed to, I think is always a great way of creating dialogue and a way of educating people. You know, in Adelaide, in a city, most people don't actually really get an opportunity to get out to these communities. And a lot of these communities even are very isolated and aren't necessarily accessible all year year round. So it's a great way to learn about where these artists come from and the amazing diverse places that we have in Australia, because it's amazing when you talk to art centres and you talk about all the different ways, you know, even that art comes in and what they have to do to organise even getting their artworks to Adelaide, you really start to understand how isolated some people really are, but how there's this beautiful part of it as well that people make it work. They create amazing things that we don't necessarily see or think about every day. It's a normal way of life for them to be telling these stories um, and to be doing these practices. Within that visual expression and that visual storytelling through art, can you tell me a little bit more about perhaps the importance of connecting traditional techniques and uh, with the more contemporary practice? 
it's always an interesting one too because there's this idea of traditional versus contemporary but I guess for Aboriginal people because they've always been telling stories too it's kind of like where does one end and one begin because for Aboriginal people it's a continuous storytelling that they've just adapted over time there's a beauty in that too because you see you know all this amazing colour in works and there's some beautiful colourful works coming in and you know people have adapted from those bright colours that they see in their environment anyway you know where they're from and even expressing that through the art using black acrylics and the more non-traditional mediums but I guess in a way it's also that beauty that the storytelling is is ageless still too to that component of the artworks it's a continuous storytelling just in new ways is there a range of different generations involved some art centers have senior artists coming some art centers have senior and younger artists coming to Nundi in a whole like as part of the whole festival across all of the venues there's just an amazing amount of artists involved just even with the art fair it's nearly 100 artists and there's a full range of age from elders through to um, younger emerging artists And what have you found that the mix of generations brings in terms of connecting culture and expression or or perhaps identity for First Nations people and communities? For First Nations people, obviously, um, elders are so integral to storytelling and to cultural transmission. I think art and something like an art fair really brings that together where you see people who And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening. The Wire is a co-production between 2SER, Gadigal, Sydney, 3ZZZ in Nam, Melbourne, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane, and Radio Adelaide with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. Remember, you can check out our stories at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Emma Watsky, coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandania, Adelaide. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.